house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Lost your car? That's a keen observation. I can help you. You're giving me a brand new Jaguar and you don't want anything? Call it generosity between two strangers. What did you tell my son to make him bring a homeless man into my house? I've got a story, okay? Senior partner Channing and Moss has given away new cars. Just pay it forward. Three big favors for three other people. Hello. You can't just put two people together and make them like each other. This is the one. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. It's like this idea. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that has planted a tulip bulb that blooms every time Christoph Waltz is nominated for giving the same performance. Every week here on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, senior writer at Decider.com, Joe Reed, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, entertainment writer, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, Joe. How's it going? It's going well. That's nice. I'm looking at a very pretty sunset outside my window, which is nice. It's a gray day here, so I'm envious of your sunset. Yeah. I I need something to sort of remind me that the world is a happy place after the movie we're going to be talking about today, which is... Emotionally manipulative, to say the least. Um, As you heard in our intro this week, we have chosen the year 2000 emotionally insistent, let's say, inspirationally tragic domestic drama Pay It Forward, starring Oscar winners Kevin Spacey and Helen Hunt and very recent Oscar nominee Haley Joel Osment. Chris, why tackling Pay It Forward for this podcast especially feels necessary in a way that I want you to like explain better than I could. It feels absolutely necessary. I'm glad with some of the things that we've started this podcast with because they are kind of the quintessential this had Oscar buzz movies when we talk about these kind of movies. This one particularly, I think for Oscar obsessives of a certain age like myself, this one, you know, when you're starting to for I think my generation as we were starting to obsess over the Oscars and be try to be predictive or plan for the movies to be watching this one stands out so much as one that was just an abject complete failure i remember the did you ever read like the entertainment weekly like fall movie previews oh religiously like absolutely well and kind of plan around okay this is a big important movie over the ones that had the full spread yes i remember this one having a larger spread for it for whatever the october section was because and partly if you look at the context that this year was coming off of it was coming off of 1999 when kevin spacey won Haley joel osmond nearly won for probably what would at least in the public's eyes, be the biggest performance of the year with the six cents. Yeah, I would agree with um, that. And you also have Helen Hunt in it, um, top lining with those two actors. Who had just won a couple years before. Like, she was only a few just removed. Won. And Mad About You had ended, which had kept her from doing 
follow-up films to her Oscar win. So she was like, 1999, 2000, I am going to make every movie. Every movie. And she was like, people always talk about the like Jessica Chastain's that are in a million different movies. This was the year of that for Helen Hunt. And this was probably the biggest role of them. She also had um, Dr. T and the Women, What Women Want. And I think I'm forgetting one of them. Well, Castaway. A castaway too, which yeah. I guess is the smallest, um, or yeah. close to the smallest. Um, but then when this movie actually opens uh, and it had all of that buzz, because we know that this is going to be an emotional movie, kind of a weepy, this right. like intergenerational drama where there's children involved and parents, yeah. alcoholism, and it opens and it's the worst version of all of those things. That's just yeah. demanding us to feel things in a really garish way. And all of its characters are portrayed so garishly. It was just such a critical crash and burn. I speaking of entertainment weekly, I went back and reread Lisa Schwartzbaum's. I did too. And it is the she most is vicious piece of writing fire. I've ever read in my life. It's wonderful. It's, it begins with this like weird screed against like trend trendiness in culture about like, if you want to have coffee, but instead get a latte, you're going to love pay it forward. And I was like, Lisa, well, and it was chill it was out. So I remember her kind of lambasting Oscar culture with it too. So and yeah, I, it was this movie came out around the time where Oscar bait as a phrase kind of entered the popular lexicon yeah. as a negative term against movies. And well, we'll get to that in a bit, too, because like this, this is the year where really a lot went wrong. We've talked before about other years where like a lot of the the big Oscar bait fell through the floor. And this was a huge one. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, this one fell through the basement. It yeah. hit the earth's crust. It, yeah, <laughs> it hit that iron core of the earth that Hillary Swank and Aaron Eckhart had to restart, um, in the core. Hillary Swank found a DVD copy of pay it forward down there with Aaron Eckhart. This is the best prequel I've ever seen. Actually, now that you mentioned it. Yeah, I think I know. pay it forward to me. When I think of pay it forward, I feel like it's the, absolute worst case scenario when it comes to that thing where somebody wins an Oscar or like comes close to winning an Oscar and becomes sort of like the, the uh, performer du jour. Then all of a sudden everybody's like, Oh, cast them in everything. Like every project that comes down the pike, they're like Jennifer Lawrence. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And, well, and this movie's even worse because it has three of them. That's the, well, that's what I mean. I think this is like the absolute ultra, version of that where like Kevin Spacey wins the Oscar and all of a sudden everybody's like, he's a police negotiator. He's a, you know, inspirational teacher. He's an alien. Just fucking all of it. Just give it all of it to Kevin Spacey. And Helen Hunt was sort of, again, we talked about how she's in everything in the year 2000 and this, whoever had this script on their desk, once Haley Joel Osment became a thing, they must have like tripped over themselves running to the phone yeah. to like call somebody and just be like, we've got a kid project, a kid project. Like the second that a Sixth Sense, the Sixth Sense hit $150 million. This yeah. was instantly greenlit. Yeah. So, yeah, I think all of that sort of um, blends into the same kind of thing. We played a little bit of the trailer for you guys at the beginning after our theme music. And I want to talk a little bit about the music choices in that, because I think sometimes trailers don't always give you a a correct depiction of what a movie is going to be. But I feel like 
the tone of this trailer should have sent up a bunch of red flags because it clearly it's the most clear example of we don't know what this movie is and we kind of don't know how to market it because if you're going to sell your inspirational kid changes the world movie, I know that like they can all be changed the world by Eric Clapton and Babyface, <laughs> Right. But like, if you're going to score this trailer with filters, take a picture followed by Everclear. Like I'm thinking you maybe don't know the Oscar buzz that you think you have. Like it's, I don't know. I don't know. What did you I think mean, of you that? You can see the kind of bad logic behind it because both of those bands sound like, you know, middle America, low income optimism, like hard one optimism. But at the same time, I mean, I, I guess I would also say you have the same exact problem in maybe the first half hour of the movie where they are the whole movie is trying to trick you into it being this like sunnily disposed, like uplifting thing mm. that it totally just doesn't end tragically. Wink, wink. Yeah. So it's, it's part of just selling this movie as something that it's not. Yeah. But also back to the trailer and how it tells you all of the things that you should be on the lookout for, as in this movie is terrible. You have the very like lean in nature of saying the title, that thing that so like, many times. makes you elbow people. I mean, the movie itself does it, but when you get it in a trailer quite so badly. Do you remember towards that. the end of the of uh, the run of Seinfeld where NBC sort of caught wise to the fact that like catchphrases were developing from that show. And so then they decided to like put the catchphrase in the commercial for the TV episode before the episode aired. Before it was actually a catchphrase that caught something. That like Yeah, that that's sort of what Pay It Forward reminds me of a little bit. Of just like we're gonna try and like fetch this thing. <laughs> we're gonna, you know, we're gonna make pay it forward happen. And it kind of annoys me that they did like people still sort of say that a little bit sometimes facetiously, but sometimes it's just sort of like, you know, Oh, I'm paying yeah, you forward. People who like haven't that even kind of seen thing. this movie say that phrase. No, God, no. So many, so many more people say that than, than have ever and seen they're this very movie. Lucky souls. Probably rightfully so. Yeah. Um, it's based on a book. The, the novel is called pay it forward. It's by a woman named Catherine Ryan Hyde. It was not to the best of my knowledge, an Oprah's book club book, although it very well could have been. I feel like this is a whole era of where movies that have that sort of like schmaltzy sheen to them, where it's like somebody goes through hardships that are probably too hard. Like that's a little bit too awful. The things that happen to these people, but they find this sort of like inner strength. I feel like inner strength was a big yeah. thing with the Oprah book club. I always think of the quintessential one for me, and we should maybe talk about this on this podcast at some point is uh, the oh, deep God. end of the ocean starring Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah. Because like that one, I clearly remember that being an Oprah's book club. I also, I worked in a, in the public library when I was in high school, that was my high school job. And so I remember all of the big like novels that became movies of that era. So it was like deep end of the ocean, anything Oprah's book club, um, memoirs of a geisha, Angela's ashes, like all these kinds of books. Right. And I feel like pay it forward fits in really well with that in that it's sort of these like, so many tragic circumstances for these people. She's got the sort of emotionally abusive husband um, and physically abusive too, right? John which like played bon by John Jovi. Bon Jovi, which like, if we're going to talk about, 
we're going to talk about the poor casting in this film in a second, but like chief among these things is John Bon Jovi who like couldn't hurt a fly. Like is, is this supposed to be this like a hard ass, like just cast Dwight Yoakam. That's what every other movie of that era did. Dwight Yoakam. Um, but like, um, so like, and Helen Hunt's an alcoholic and Kevin Spacey has these burns all over him that like he, excruciatingly gets to the point of telling that whole story where it's like, you know, he's going to, you know, he's going to, you know, it's coming. And it's so free of nuance when he does it. And, and then of course what happens to Haley Joel Osment at the end, which we'll get to in a second. Um, Right. Uh, But we'll get some more of the makeup too. And then there's the, but, but wrapping all that up is this kind of like, again, very Oprah friendly. I'm going to stop crediting this to Oprah. Oprah had nothing to do with this, but like, I shouldn't blame, you know, if we're talking in the context of a book, it, it feels genre esque to say Oprah. The book is a little bit more manufactured too in its structure, from what I've researched. In that, Jay Moore's character, who, by the way, to our listeners who may not have seen this movie, there's this whole other plot device going on yeah. where Jay Moore is playing an investigative reporter who is in this outlandish scenario where someone pays it forward to him that you've heard in that trailer clip that we played where because somebody figured this movie needed the superstructure of citizen Kane. exactly jay moore is essentially working backwards from the pay the, what was paid forward to him and work backward from all of the favors to get to where this originated um and apparently it, it's kind of a small side thing that the movie has going on but the book is much more structured around that versus the the three leads that we get in the movie so yeah it's yeah i feel like it's this very 90s like everything is interconnected structured Uh thing that kind of peaked with shortcuts and magnolia but yes i think that's definitely true so, yeah. So, again, the 99 Oscars happened. This project now, this Pay It Forward project, gets uh, originally was going to cast Denzel Washington in the role of the teacher because in the book, the teacher's name is Reuben St. Clair. He's a black man. Um, and so, at the and time... The burns aren't a story as well. He's supposed to be a Vietnam vet. Oh, so, so he has when it got whitewashed the into... Yeah, he got whitewashed into Kevin Spacey, and Kevin Spacey, I guess, kind of strong-armed this burn victimhood. Yeah. So there was a controversy at the time about whitewashing, although it was, I think it came out later, that Denzel Washington was actually offered the role and turned it down. So I do like the idea that, like, well, Denzel Washington turned it down. What else were we to do? And so right. that's that's a little silly because, like, Don Cheadle exists, like, several of that. I do, I do get the idea that, like, we needed an actor who could open it. And, like, there are only so many of those going around. Kevin Spacey had just essentially become one um, or so people thought. Well, and, and I mean, you can very much see Kevin Spacey wielding his evil power to get this role because like i don't know especially with the type of ego we know he has and all of the horrible things that we now know about him we talked a little bit about uh harvey weinstein last week the caveat still stands for kevin spacey as well yeah yeah yeah. imagine us sort of making gross faces when we talk about him yeah um if we had a buzzer we would throw it in there um yeah but you can imagine kevin spacey somehow getting this script and being like it doesn't matter that he's black i need this 
yeah, you can sort. And also, if you're going to then do that, right? If you're going to cast Kevin Spacey in this role, like, there's no reason at all why you can't then cast the Jay Moore role with a black actor or with a person of color of right. some sort. Like, that's you know, it's no excuse for everything down the line. Let's say, um, Jay Moore being one of my least favorite recurring like actors who pops up in movies that I enjoy. Um, not saying that this is a movie that I enjoy, but there are quite a few movies where I'm just like, Oh, I like that so much. And then also Jay Moore's <laughs> in it, like whatever. Um, but it was, there was a little, it was kind of funny how Jay Moore is in the opening scene of this movie. It's the one we heard a little bit about in that clip from the trailer where his car gets crashed into it's pouring rain and this sort of stranger, comes walking by is he walking his dog uh he's just i know he has an umbrella in the rain and a trench coat it's very i can't remember i mean like so he's just like i have a jaguar you can hear here like take my key shows up to like like, a domestic violence thing he's like rubbernecking these um police officers to get some story because there's a domestic dispute going on and then because we really have to know that he doesn't have scruples. He has that to he will... himself into the movie as, I'm a reporter. Or he, I think he says, I'm a journalist. Right, and I don't care about human and stories. He, yeah. his car, in the meantime, gets destroyed. And then this man comes out of the rain in a trench coat, fedora, and umbrella. And oh, oh, boy. a jaguar to oh, him. Oh, boy. If there, I mean, it, this movie is giving us a clear indicator that we need to abandon ship and it does it immediately because we signed up for Kevin Spacey, Helen Hunt and Haley Joel Osment making us feel good about ourselves. And this scene is crazy. Yeah. I do like how like though you get Jay Moore in the opening scene and then when it cuts to Haley Joel Osment at school, the next, the, you know, first day of school or whatever that we see him, they're playing uh, no doubts new on the soundtrack from go. from go and so i was just like i'm in a very like go place which i you know normally try to be anyway but um i was thinking like that high school was definitely within the sum 41 cinematic universe it was yeah it, yeah also setting the movie in las vegas because the movie is set in las vegas which is such a it creates such a shorthand for the Helen Hunt character. Helen Hunt plays Helly Delesman's mother. She's a waitress at a casino. She's also like, uh, not necessarily a stripper, but she's like a cocktail waitress who dresses very skimpy and sort of like rubs up on the guys to get tips and stuff like that. But she doesn't like it because you can tell because her face goes stone faced when she turns around. Um, so, but I feel like the whole Vegas setting is such a v- easy shorthand for vice and and sin and like oh well everybody's everybody's sad in vegas because everybody's self-centered and greedy and nobody's thinking about their fellow man and yada 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 it's just it felt shortcutty in a way a lot of the rest of the movie then also does it's like one of the more graceful nuanced ways of being <laughs> shortcutty in this film that's an excellent point so um what else do we want to talk about? I guess we'll talk about the movie. We can talk. Actually, I want to talk a little bit as the, because the movie premieres in October of 2000 and it sort of enters the every, every year we kind of lay out what the, what the year's possible Oscar offerings have in store for us. And sometimes there are late breakers and sometimes things get pushed around and sometimes things 
that we thought were going to be great, you know, ended up being terrible always. Like that's what this whole podcast is all about. But I feel like the year 2000 especially had this like very prestige heavy fall and winter scheduled where this uh, was the year of films like The Legend of Bagger Vance and All the Pretty Horses and Men of Honor, that uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., Robert De Niro movie. Um, Unbreakable, which was M. Night Shyamalan's follow-up to The Sixth Sense, so everybody had a lot of eyes on that. Um, Lucky Numbers was a new Nora Ephron movie, which, you know, those movies had had success in the past. Steven Soderbergh had Traffic coming out. Cameron Crowe had Almost Famous, which had just premiered in September. So Pay It Forward was considered a pre-release frontrunner, or at least one of them, I feel like. Yes? Yes. And so that's sort of the environment then that it's that uh this movie is moving into we should also say this movie is directed by mimi leader who had been coming off of deep impact which is interesting to think about in terms of success and failure because that movie and armageddon both opened in 1998 they were both the you know meteor destroys the earth movies armageddon is the more commercially successful one deep impact i think was the critics choice of the two if you can say that one of the two of them had critics choice, neither yeah. one of them were like critics movies, but like deep impact definitely had like the nod of respect where people were like, Oh, this is, you know, this has a good story. This may not be as flashy. Cause like Armageddon it wasn't viscerally, viscerally disliked the way Armageddon was by critics. Well, it's a Michael Bay movie. It is crass as fuck. I still will probably watch it if it shows up on cable, but it's like, it's a true guilty pleasure when I do watch it. Um, Deep Impact is a better movie. So I feel like if Mimi Leader is not coming off of huge blockbuster success there, she's at least pretty well regarded. Um, People are kind of supportive, I feel like. Like, she also made that movie The Peacemaker. Yeah, The Peacemaker came before it, too. So she's kind of more in an action mold or a thriller mold before. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And of course, now we know her from her work on HBO's The Leftovers. She's done a lot of TV, obviously ER. She did a lot of ER. Um, And a lot of people consider her to be in like director jail because of this movie, but she really never stopped working. She's had a really extensive television career. Right, but she was sort of bumped down to television. Yeah, She wasn't... uh, I feel like I'm trying to remember if she made any feature films between Pay It Forward and... Because she's got the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie coming out this year, um, which now I feel like because of her TV work, I think people realize what a great director she is. And so now... Yeah, Pay It Forward will probably be more of a footnote um, when that movie... One would hope. Or one would hope. You know, or just a smaller talking point, especially if the movie goes over well. Yeah, she did a movie called Thick as Thieves in in, uh, 2009 with Morgan Freeman and Antonio Banderas that I've never heard of. It's also called The Code, I guess. Um, And, but yeah, like Director Jail, with the caveat that like Director Jail and this was like uh, minimum security (laughs) uh, club fed, which is essentially television. Um, has done great work there. But yeah, Pay It Forward was a big old setback. And I think we can sort of discuss how Mimi Leader being a woman in the industry, perhaps failure for her was more harshly 
absolutely sentence. You know, she got a, well, a harsher and, sentence. Doing so in a movie that is considered a weepy as well, so it's easier for people to pile on because they yes. not only do they not like women, they don't yeah. like these kind of movies. Yeah, it's a good point. So let's talk about the movie. We're not going to go through the entire plot. We tell, we gave you a little bit of the thing at the beginning just to set up the idea of. Jay Moore is tracking down this whole this phenomenon of people doing random acts of kindness and good deeds, selfless good deeds, uh, and saying that they're doing it to pay forward, pay it forward for a good deed that was done for them. So he's sort of you know following that chain link by link back to ultimately what we find out, and we find out fairly early on in the movie is that this whole idea was started by this little kid played by Haley Joel Osment in a class. I don't know what this class Thank is. you. I'm so it's happy a, you brought that up because I was going to bring it up myself. Like, they're too young to be doing, like, U.S. government or civics well, or something like that. There's a seventh they're grade like, social studies class that Kevin Spacey yeah. teaches in this movie. And you never, in all of the times, it the, once we're in the school, it essentially opens with this whole, you know, diatribe about changing the world and having purpose and uh, yes. you know, making your place or whatever, and you never actually learn things like geography or the Declaration. I was going to say seventh grade social studies is American history, motherfucker. Like, get to it, because these kids need to learn about the War of eighteen twelve sooner or later. And it's like the classroom has mostly blank walls, and then there's an Oregon poster. Yes. Like, yeah. So, yeah, the teacher of this class is played by Kevin Spacey. He. Um, has very visible although sometimes more visible than others scars on his face and you can tell it's sort of like those visible and sometimes not visible at all yeah sometimes it made me think of um what's her face in ready player one where she's like i can't show my face i can only show my avatar and it's like oh you have a birthmark i see you're so hideous and Um, that character in the book is supposed to it's supposed to cover her whole half of a face insane but no some of kevin spacey's burns it's like if you were watching this in some bad existing 35 millimeter print of it that's all dusty you probably wouldn't even notice it or if you got a vhs of it it wouldn't even be visible yeah so spacey plays the teacher helen hunt as we said plays Haley joel osmond's mother who is uh you know trying to make ends meet and has a drinking problem that she is kind of white knuckling it through we never see her go to meetings for it or whatever but she's trying to like resist the urge to you know pull that bottle of vodka out of the toilet tank or whatever like you know those facing the house 14 times very very i i often find it to be uh those soap opera kind of uh depictions of addiction which is you know oh i've got you know i'm i'm hiding the bottle behind the pillow on the couch like that kind of thing or um, I'm having my lava hot vodka from my <laughs> overhead lamp. Yes. Yeah, which is the thing we actually see point. in the movie. Yeah. So I feel like the one of the biggest problems in this movie, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, is I don't think either – I think both Spacey and Helen Hunt are terribly miscast. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, it's not just that they are miscast. It's also that – their defining characteristics are that are the things that make them not right for this role are dialed up to 11, not as spacey is by the performance, but Helen hunt is by the way that she is dressed. They put her in this This mop of a wig, crunchy hair. And, you know, especially this is the same year as Aaron Brockovich, where there was a big deal made about how they dressed 
Julia Roberts, and it kind of feels like the same thing done with no taste whatsoever. Oh, can I tell you how I know that this movie was the same year as Aaron Brockovich? Because Thomas Newman used the same goddamn score for that for this movie as he did for Aaron like Brockovich. Listen to the score. Of score, like when he it was is, really angry at Steven Soderbergh. Those cuts of the score what show up in this movie. The same. It is utterly. I literally. I had to pause it. I had to like catch my bearings and then I had to text a friend of mine who I know has seen this movie. And I'm like, is Thomas Newman just using his Aaron Brockovich score? And like, it's the same, but Um, bad. Like maybe it's just a context thing, but like there's a certain sloppiness to it and like jangle and tone to this. It's so delightful in Aaron Brockovich. I'll tell you, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what I'm talking about, literally find any clip of Aaron Brockovich on YouTube and it'll have a little bit of that. Like, like like it's it's so recognizably aaron brockovich and i know that like when you're making though you know two movies in the same year or whatever you don't know that one of them is going to become like one of the most replayed movies on cable ever like it's on all the it does sound like the discarded tracks from aaron brockovich or like the demo for aaron brockovich before it was finessed in some way it sounds angry like there's this weird like angry intensity to it in this movie though it's true it's to me it's so emblematic of a movie that never quite feels like it has its own identity down like it it's it doesn't have a handle on it and i feel like just fully using the score of another movie like is so perfect like actually for that so anyway you know who i think would have done a really good job in the helen hunt role okay lay it on me tell me if i'm wrong marissa tomei oh my god Marissa Tomei would have, I mean, again, I don't think this is a good movie in in most respects. I think it's sort of done in from the script level, but I think Marissa Tomei is a better fit for this role than Helen Hunt is by far. I think even, well, I think that is fantastic, but I mean, Marissa Tomei has played that part since, kind of, or at least pieces of that part since, so like that that's partly why it makes sense. I would really actually be interested, even though it would probably not be Uh, incredible but i think denzel washington is actually an interesting casting choice for kevin spacey's role oh yeah i would have liked to have seen that aspects of it are things he can do in his sleep and sell and not make bad the way kevin spacey does but there's something about especially the monologue where kevin spacey talks about how his burns happened to him where he's literally berating helen hunt to ask him to keep going that yeah and that's so it's that that to me is just that's his acting yeah. style and it, more and than it anything just asks for so much sympathy rather than playing the scene and like just begs you to be sympathetic with it in a way that denzel washington is not that kind of performer and never really can you think of a movie where you rooted for kevin spacey to end up with a with uh, leading lady. Oh man, and this this one has some like that's just real... not what he does well. Not even getting into the like the homosexuality aspect of it, but like real cringy moments because it also feels like Helen Hunt is playing it like she knows that this is a gay man. <laughs> yeah, like it's icky. I mean, aside from the fact that there's a part where Kevin Spacey beats up a man who is trying to sexually aggress Haley Joel Osment. It is yeah. in hindsight, the aspects of Kevin, which Spacey plays real interesting in 2018. Worse. Let me tell you what. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it, no, yeah. I, 
Yeah. So I literally can't think of Kevin Spacey being in any other kind of love story, unless you want to call American Beauty that there's a <laughs> there is a romantic relationship there with Annette Benning. But it's not like you're like, oh God, I hope those two can get it together. Like I really root for their marriage. Like, no, it's And the scene where in the living room where he's trying to get her to have sex with him on the sofa is like yeah it's like his worst scene in the movie like i've even during the like the kevin spacey golden era which is sort of this is kind of within that realm right where like he's at his highest end of it i mean this i mean i think all three of them were a little bit killed by this movie that they kind of had to come back from it because even kevin spacey this took a ding to his um so yeah i think the the i think healy joel osmond is cast perfectly fine i think he's a good especially at this point in his career i think he's a good little actor i think he plays some scenes really good he's less effective when he's being the sort of like impish little scamp who's like trying to set them up on a date without them knowing it and that kind of thing yeah he's better when he's playing emotionally fraught actually like he's that's just what he's good at at you know um child adult basically because there's some of the things he right. has to say specifically to helen hunt that i'm like he's 11 he would have we never that. got him and dakota fanning together at the same time at the right age is sort of a, <laughs> a tragedy of the cosmos in a way because they could have done who's afraid of virginia wolf together and i would have bought it as children i would as children that. i would right. watch children do who's afraid of virginia wolf directed by like john waters or something like that i would have watched it isn't that a joke in camp? Have you ever seen the movie camp? Don't they it is do a joke in camp at the very well, end. Like Anna Kendrick. Yeah. And she walks in and she goes, what a dump. And it's like, that's, that's the post credit scene. And there's like camp. a kid that's two feet taller as George or two feet yes. shorter as George. Thank you for making me remember that I didn't come up with that joke on my own, that I stole it from camp. Um, can we talk for one second about how both Jim Caviezel and Angie Dickinson are in this movie? This movie is like the stealth player in any of those six degrees of Kevin Bacon games because this <laughs> cast is absolutely batshit. Like, yeah, you have Jesus in this movie. Yeah, Jesus, John Bon Jovi, and Angie Dickinson, like three people who've never been in my kitchen. It's wild. It's utterly wild. Maybe we should talk about John Bon Jovi for a second. And he's literally okay. in the movie for several seconds, and that's about it. But he's he is. He shows up. This abusive, uh, you know, like a distant father that's never there. And he's also part of a lot of um, Helen Hunt's alcohol abuse problems because it's like they instigate each other. Yeah. Haley Joel Osment is like dreading his return throughout most of the first half of the movie where he's like, you know, telling his mother that like, you're, you're just waiting for him to come back. And he doesn't, uh, he clearly doesn't want him to come back. And then when he does, they're happy for legitimately half of a scene, which is total 25 and, seconds. And then he's immediately, he's immediately drunk, but he's not like, not conceivably i mean he might be he's not the person who you know helen hunt is going to get beat up by him and stay like helen hunt is going to destroy him one would imagine and yet it's just it's it's not played that way at all non-believable but it happens so quickly is the other thing he's such a plot device of a character that there's no time to actually sort of like feel any any kind of way about those scenes that he's in. 
it's weird. His acting career is weird. I have to say, like, would you say that it is living on a prayer? <laughs> Maybe I will say, like, listen, we all loved Moonlight and Valentino. I'm not gonna lie, but like, the fact that they tried to make a go, like, that he was on Ally McBeal for the better part of a season Oy. is weird. Right around this time, too. Maybe, like, the next year. He was in U571. You can just imagine that, like, he's talking to his agent and saying, like, I'm really trying to get into this acting thing. Give me something edgy. Give me something that I can work with that's dark. And this is the best that they could do for him. Well, and you look at it from the Hollywood side of it, and it's like, I love when Hollywood takes a look at somebody who's not an actor by profession and just goes, you're so damn good looking. It would be a waste for you to not be a movie star. And we're going to make it happen. And we're going to at least try. And they try and they, you know, very often fail. But it's, I I almost wit, I almost uh, anticipate it happening with like a Tom Brady. You know what I mean? When he retires from football oh, or something that they're going to try and like, like that's sort of what they do with wrestlers. It's different because like wrestlers have this sort of like persona that they're already movie sized charisma anyways, whatever. But even still with like John Cena, they're like, you're too good looking to not be in the movies. So John Cena's funny though. I kind of think John, Cena I like John Cena. I think sometimes it works charming. and I think it works with him. Charming as an idiot. Yes, of course. See blockers. Blockers is really good. Um, not to, not necessarily saying that to you, but to everybody, everybody out there. You can say it to me. I have not seen Blockers yet. Oh my God, Chris, see Blockers for God's sake! You would like it. It's very good. Sorry, I just yelled at you there. I don't want to yell at you. You're you my can yell at me. Podcast I, 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 I have Ike Barinholt problems, but you know I do too. But I will say, it's not. It didn't. It doesn't show up in this movie. Okay. I think there's less of a. You're you're really not asked to find his bad behavior charming in this movie in a way that you maybe expect to. And if that's your Ike Barinholtz problem, because that's kind of mine. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a TJ Miller thing with him, Oy. which is good. Yeah. Um, because I am determined to bring up every person who we can't talk about <laughs> uh, anymore. We're already talking about people that people hate. Kevin Spacey. So let's everyone else yeah. is comparatively fine. So the big ding on pay it forward, especially from the, the reviews at the time were that it was emotionally manipulative. And to talk about that, we need to talk about the ending. And if you in any way care about being spoiled about the 18 years old flop, pay it forward, maybe fast forward, but you know what? I'm just going to tell you to go with it because I feel like, I feel like most people know about, what happens at the end of this movie anyway, because it's so notorious well, I feel like it, for being so hard if, on its audience. Especially now, 18 years on, if they don't know, it will be the truly final thing that even if they want to watch a movie that is laughably bad, that it will be like, I am yeah. not spending my time on it, is the end of this movie. So here's the gag. Haley Joel Osment starts this movement. He thinks, see, okay, th- this is where it almost gets like slightly... I don't want to say Shakespearean, but there's something of the fact that like he starts this movement. It's it's a wild success unbeknownst to him because it's like a chain letter. He doesn't know what's going on when it like reverberates out into the world, but it's reverberating out into the world. But all Haley Joel Osment wants it to do is to get his mom and his teacher together. And when that doesn't work, 
he feels like it's a failure. And like Jay Moore ultimately finds him and writes an article about him, but it's all for naught because his mom and his teacher are not romantically involved. And so Haley Joel, I'm not going to remember his name. You guys, it's maybe Travis. I don't know. Um, it's probably Travis, right? I'm going to look it up really quickly. It's Trevor. I was so close. You got to give me that. You got to give me a for effort for that. I was close. Um, Trevor runs so <laughs> because they've been seeding through this issue of like Trevor's best friend at school is this little kid who gets picked on by these bullies and we like shoved don't in even feel cans. sympathy for because the first word out of his mouth this is also indicative of the era too that it yeah. was so fine to have this like little like sweet asthmatic tiny kid just like dropping anti-gay epithets his first line in the movie basically. oh right so it's like you yeah. don't really feel bad for this kid no but so trevor wants to like his good deed is going to be he's going to stick up for his friend and so he sees his friend getting picked on by these like preteen greaser kids like it's so the characterization of them is actually really funny we're like they they're so cartoonish and they're like riding bikes around in a circle around him or something. And they're just, it's all very simple, simplistic. And the the bully, the like main bully literally has slicked back hair straight out of the fifties, which he almost like slicks back with the blade of his switchblade and like, doesn't quite, but I really want him to do it. Um, And so Haley Joel jumps in to save his friend. And there's a little bit of a, um, scuffle and then one of the bullies the greaser bullies um, pulls out his knife his switchblade and you see it he flashes the knife but he doesn't stab Haley Joel Haley Joel gets knocked into the knife so there's no like true villainy here it's only you know horrible tragic accident and then it's the end of the Godfather 3 essentially where Spacey sees it and Helen Hunt sees it and they both run down because it's a you know it's the, the west you know so this big school has these multiple outside terraces and levels and so they're all running down and then they you know she cradles her son in her arms and then they show the little like wordless shot at the hospital but it all reminds it's all very godfather 3 to me where like pacino's screaming and you don't hear any sound and it's it's very it's harrowing listen yeah. it's a you know child protagonist getting murdered by a stabbing in the middle of school. Like it's all so very 13 reasons why, but like, um, but then it doesn't even end there with the awfulness and the emotional manipulation. It's because after there, you know, you see Kevin Spacey and Helen hunt go back grieving kind of dejected. And like, there's news footage of the stabbing back at, um, Helen hunt's house. And then they take a step outside and the house has been swarmed with grievers leaving flowers and holding candles. Candlelight vigil, you guys, like you would not believe. Calling all angels all all over that soundtrack. And like the camera pulls back. (laughs) And not the shitty train song, but like the sad little indigo girls-esque song that uh don't contemporary feel your feelings the world will be a better place type of anthem and the camera pulls back from the scene and you see that there's like backed up traffic of people who are coming to hold it's like the end of field of dreams (laughs) i i mean you can only laugh because it is truly it's so over the top and it's so 
I don't just the message of it of just like, oh, we couldn't be good people on our own. We couldn't even be good people if we had like essentially the 2000 version of a meme running around, like snaking its way around, making us do good things and getting Jaguars for it. No, we can only be good people if a child dies for our sins. It's gross. I mean, like, and it's especially gross if you kind of contextualize it against the year 2000 instead of the year 2018, because like now it's easier to believe like some type of outward show or like mass, uh, like not vigilance, but like a mass show of support in this type of situation because of the way of social media. But like, it was especially ridiculous at the time because you have this grand show of mobilization uh, that doesn't make any emotional sense, let alone logistical no. sense. Sure doesn't. So the movie gets horrible reviews, just absolutely bad reviews. Um, doesn't make a dent at the box office, although it's not like a massive failure, but it doesn't it doesn't do well. It made okay, yeah, it made thirty three million dollars off of a forty million dollar budget. So, yeah. Failure. Let's that's say a, even failure. a little shocking too, because that's kind of higher than I would have expected without even looking at it. Well, it opened like number three. Like it really did. I mean, it did a little bit of business when it first came out. I think the reviews probably killed it, which probably tells you that there was some anticipation around it that, you know, especially being in a critical news cycle where word on a movie didn't travel as fast yeah. as it does now. So this on its own would have been a you know Oscar bait bomb within the context of everything else that happened that fall though it became i feel like it like burned a little brighter because this was the fall of everything Oscar bait did horrible like got terrible reviews did terrible business i think pay it forward bagger vance all the pretty horses were like the triumvirate of failure there where they were on everybody's oscar predictions um, I think they were all based on books. I think they all had sort of these buzzy actors. All the Pretty Horses has Matt Damon and a pre-Oscar Penelope Cruz, who at that point was just the actress from the Almodovar movies, who everybody was like, no, she's going to be huge in the States. And it, at this point, wasn't happening. Directed by Billy Bob Thornton, who was already an Oscar winner for Sling Blade. And then Bagger Vance, it's Robert Redford directing Will Smith and again, Matt Damon. Um, So all three of those movies were just cratered, absolutely cratered and cratered similarly, at least with Bagger Vance and Pretty Horse or uh, Bagger Vance and Pay It Forward, where it's like, oh, you don't really think much of your audience, do you? Yeah, I don't know. Um, What were your what was your experience of of the big fall Fall 2000 disaster movies. Uh, okay, so a lot of those were movies that I caught up with eventually. Yeah. Like, as far as Oscar history goes and my experience with it, I came out okay this year, but I did see Pay It Forward. And just, I remember it being kind of a critical movie for my understanding of what makes a good movie and what makes a disaster. Because I was, I was young at this point. I would have been 13 years old. Um, okay. All right. So let's, like even let's an cool it with that shit. All right. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but 
as far as it this like it was something that even then I knew this is an utter disaster. This movie is an embarrassment. <laughs> I, I remember at the time I was a little bit older than you, so I was uh, in college at the time, and I remember I was already. This was when I would sort of really pay attention to the Oscar race as the year was sort of wrapping up, and I was like, "What are what." What am I? What do I have to look forward to for this year's Oscars? And I remember one of the magazines. It was either EW or Time. Back when Time sort of covered this stuff a little bit robustly, and it was essentially was like, okay, fall is a lost cause. Like everything, because the big movies from the fourth quarter of two thousand that ended up doing well with Oscar were traffic and crouching tiger. And those didn't open until December. Like they were late. Those are also not studio movies as well. Those are independent studios and traffic was USA films, which eventually became focus. And yes, and Crouching Tiger with Sony Classics. Pay It Forward is a Warner Brothers movie. And Warner Brothers, did they? Ha- what other contenders did they have make it through to Oscar? Because I don't think they had anything, too. So you also have the sense of this is from a major studio and this was their big play. Yeah. So because of that, then, then all of a sudden, it becomes a more interesting Oscar year because then all of a sudden... Uh, Academy voters have to reach for different places. And what they ended up doing was reaching back to the spring and they pulled in Gladiator, which was a huge success and which was getting that sort of like Ben-Hur style Oscar buzz then because it reminded everybody of an old Oscar winner. And Aaron Brockovich, which all of a sudden went from being a Julia Roberts vehicle that could, you know, have some legs to it in terms of an Oscar campaign for her than to, oh no, this entire movie's really good. And because traffic opened later in le- later in December, the Soderbergh snowball really started going, where all of a sudden now, the fact that both of these movies were so good became like they each kept enhancing each other's buzz to the point it's where... your story. Yeah, that's the thing. It was like such a good story. So... Then all of a sudden, the Oscar race becomes very interesting because you've got Gladiator and Aaron Brockovich from the beginning of the year. You've got Crouching Tiger and Traffic from the end of the year. And then that fifth spot was pretty fifth slot was pretty much up for grabs. And I, at the time, and probably still, would have really hoped that Almost Famous could pull it out because that was that was the failure that you that you were rooting for. At least I was. I was in love with that movie then. I still am now. It was a box office bomb um, at, in December. It just really – it didn't have the stars, I think, was probably most of, of it. Um, By Oscar time, its star had really faded too. Yes. So it, the amount that it, of attention it did get really kind of spoke to the legs of how much people – really loved that movie another movie that did sort of a similar trajectory to that was wonder boys where it it came out around Aaron Brockovich time i thought it was a spring movie or a late yeah movie. but like it didn't make it didn't make any money they re-released it in the fall and it still didn't make any money um and ultimately michael douglas who at least was like well at the very least michael douglas will get nominated because he's michael douglas and then he gets snubbed at the very last minute after everybody was you know basically had it marked down as a lock that he was going to get nominated ed harris for pollock ends up taking his spot um it was it was an odd and interesting year i will say it was the last year that an acting win 
truly shocked me. Are you talking about Marsha Gay Harden? I'm talking about Marsha Gay Harden. Um, I don't think anything since, in terms of acting categories, have ever surprised me quite that much. Right? Like, that was... I remember the timing of it being like there was some heat and Sony Classics was doing so well because Crouching Tiger was making so much money and Crouching Tiger was such a player that it felt that category specifically felt a little more open because who's behind her probably one of the two almost famous women who are probably splitting each other's vote and we already mentioned that that movie lost a lot of steam Kate Hudson won the Globe. And I think when Kate Hudson won the Globe, the assumption was, okay, she's the ingenue. She's the daughter of an Oscar winner. This all makes a lot of sense. So probably this is what's going to happen. And then I want to say, and I'm going to look this up, but I want to say Judy Dench won the SAG. I think that's true. And I think Julie Walters won BAFTA, maybe? That would also probably make a ton of sense because Billy Elliot was huge. That's the other thing. So the nominees and supporting actress, uh, Marsha Gay Harden ends up beating Kate Hudson and Francis, Francis McDormand for Almost Famous, Julie Walters for Billy Elliot, Judy Dench for Chocolat. And at that point, I think you're right. And Francis had won a few critics awards because Almost Famous and Wonder Boys together, it was a big year for her as a supporting actress. So that's probably one of those years where everything sort of spread out to everybody and then here comes Marsha Gay Harden, who was a surprise nominee on uh, on nomination morning. What a thrill. And then she wins. It's this huge shock. And she comes up <laughs> and as deadpan as you please, just says, what a thrill. And I'm like, Marsha, I'm, I'm on the floor here. Like, sh- like something. I love her. But like, oh, my God, she's so she takes it so in stride. And I'm like, how did you see this coming? Nobody else did. Uh, <laughs> We've already talked about Marsha on this podcast. We will continue to talk about Marsha on this podcast. We, we do love her. Also, Julia Roberts' uh, Oscar speech that year in 2000. One of my favorite things. It is, it's chutzpah for days. It's honestly, who could get away with being quite so imperious on that stage of like taking a moment to like fix her dress so it looks pretty. Like, and I have to say, because this this conversation has weirdly come up on Twitter uh, recently about Julia Roberts and not discerning the win. And I will say, because I she would still maybe get my vote, like she won in this formidable Juliet Binoche accepted category of. I don't. Yeah. I know a lot of people aren't high on the contender, but I'm especially high on Joan Allen. Joan Allen's so good in that movie, and like. Laura Linney and You Can Count on Me is one of my five favorite performances in a movie of all time. She's so good in that movie. If my um, vote, I mean, I also could probably say something similar about Laura Linney, but my vote, if not to Julia, might go to Ellen Burstyn for Requiem for a Dream because that's sure, she like, was the huge critical champ that year. Absolutely. I mean, it's just like an atom bomb of a performance, like just one of those ones that are yeah. burned into your brain of, and especially, you know, for we say like i think the way that actresses especially older actresses are looked at you know a certain level of risk is shocking to people and yeah and while i think that's unearned there is something really shocking about the places that this established legend goes that i don't think we commonly see or that the actresses of her age get to have the opportunity to do 
It's very true. It's it's that category is one of the best best actress categories. I think even with Juliette Binoche, which is like it's an odd, you know, Miramax uh, Miramax sort of pushed that movie into the race. I believe it robbed Almost Famous of a Best Picture nomination, and it robbed Renee Zellweger of her first nomination for Nurse Betty, which I think she's really good in. But it's Julia, it's Julia Pinoche. How churlish am I going to be about Julia Pinoche, ultimately? I think it's just a great category. And it's funny to think of Helen Hunt trying to crack that particular you know, category, in any, you know, in any kind of iteration of, of Pay It Forward. And Helen Hunt's probably the best performance of the three, even though I think she's asked to do some pretty ridiculous things. I would probably so, say Haley Joel Osment's better than her. I don't know. There, are, There's a lot of that where I just fully don't believe her. And a lot of that is casting, but it's also... But it's not her fault. Like, I don't believe any of them. Right. No, that's true. But I will say... Um, Helen Hunt that year did find some success in the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards, where she was nominated, I think, for both this and What Women Want um, as Best Actress, which, sure. Oh, wait, no, she was nominated in two categories. She was nominated for What Women Want in the category of Favorite Actress Comedy Romance, and then it, she was also nominated for favorite actress drama romance opposite literally the bomb squad. It's her Charlize Theron from Bagger Vance, Penelope Cruz for all the pretty horses and Gwyneth Paltrow for bounce who wins. Ah, what, like, what am I well, to make of that? I feel like we are just bracing our audience to get a lot of history about the blockbuster entertainment awards because I will talk about the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards every time because you know what it's going to be these movies that we talk about on this podcast that's what that's the award that they're getting nominated for it's nothing else because but that I except maybe a Razzie like the, the the people who are not ever in a million years going to see Requiem for a Dream but they are somewhat interested in like the pedigree of what these movies are supposed to be, right? When they show up to their blockbuster, they're going to rent pay it forward. So those yeah. are the performances that they're going to, you know, if they're if less discerning viewers or they aren't stomaching heavier things, they might remember these kind of movies. Uh-huh. Elsewhere on the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards that year, Kevin Spacey gets nominated for Pay It Forward in Favorite Actor Drama Romance, opposite essentially the same people from those movies, all the pretty horses, Matt Damon, Will Smith, Bagger Vance, Ben Affleck for bounce, who also wins. So clearly Ben Affleck and Gwyneth Paltrow were, were hot stuff with the, with the blockbuster crowd, but also nominated as a fifth uh, additional nominee. I'm going to give them credit for this. Billy Crudup and almost famous. Good for you. You know what? Good for you guys. That's a good pick. I was going to say that I'm disturbed that the blockbuster entertainment awards categorize pay it forward as a romance. Uh huh. Well, I think that goes that goes hand in hand with the fact that, like, I think I don't think anybody ever had a good handle on what this movie is. Is it a tragedy? Is it a melodrama? Is it a sort of light-hearted movie that sort of like cuts your guts out at the end? Is like, I'm not sure. There's a little bit of it seems sort of TV movie esque, but not even like a TV movie of that era. 
Yeah. Anyway, Haley Joel Osment also gets a nomination for supporting actor. He wins. He beats out only two others, both from Almost Famous, Jason Lee and Philip Seymour Hoffman, which sure. You know what? It cut my heart out eight ways from Sunday. That's fine. <laughs> um, I love the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards in retrospect. I couldn't imagine watching them at the time, but what a crew what a what a what a cast of uh of nominees. I I highly recommend going through what every once in a while and going to IMDb and looking through this list of uh, blockbuster nominees. It's wild. Anything else on pay it forward? I do not think I have any more to say on pay it forward. It's really as bad as, as the reputation suggests it would be. As we said with tulip fever last week, I think we are quite the last word on this movie. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, actually though, I hope I, I hope, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic that Mimi Leader is directing later this year. That is true. Ends ends up being good enough that it makes people go back and watch Pay It Forward to like, maybe this movie's not as bad as we thought. And then they're just like, oh no. Yeah. Oh gosh. And then the bottom falls out very quickly. And then the bottom falls out. And then but then we'll all you know realize that like RBG is even better. It's not gonna be called RBG. What is it called? Um On the Basis of Sex. On the Basis of Sex. Thank you very much. Felicity Jones plays and Ruth Army Bader Ginsburg. Hammer. An army hammer. I'm looking forward to that movie. I have a little, you know, biopics are a little, you know, they could they could turn out real bad. But yeah. I think I, Mimi I, Leader is the most exciting part of that movie for me. 100% true. 100%. I don't know about that Felicity Jones casting. But we'll see in the fall. So that is our episode. Thank you for sticking with us. I hope you really liked it. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, why don't you tell them, uh, tell everybody where they can find you and your stuff. You can find me on Twitter at Chris V file. That's V F E I L. Um, I am also a contributor to the film experience. You'll catch me there talking about soundtracks, movie music, uh, Oscar stuff, um, movies. Um, and yeah, follow me on Twitter. All of it. Follow him on Twitter. He's really good. I am also on Twitter. I'm at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. And every day you can read me at Decider.com, covering film and TV and everything that is on streaming. That's all for this week, though. We hope you will be back next week for more Buzz. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's so loud. That's so loud.